we pitched Crayola and in the pitch, we went around kind of doing intros and one of the team members, my friend Vic, he introduced himself as the senior strategist. And he said, you know, I'm the senior strategist. I used to be an elementary school teacher and the client stopped us and said like, well, hang on a sec. You're going to be the strategist on this project and you used to be an elementary school teacher. And he's like, yeah. And you know, Crayola does a lot of stuff for schools and teachers and parents and kids. And he said, well, then you win. And we're like, well, what do you mean? He's like, you win the pitch. We're going with you. To the Future Podcast, a show that explores the interesting overlap between design, marketing, and business. I'm Greg Gunn. When you think of a design agency, you might imagine a large, bustling office with an open floor plan teeming with creative people. And most of the time, reality would meet your expectations. But not all of the time. Because that's not what Philadelphia-based agency super-friendly is. In fact, it's not even close. Superfriendly is a distributed design collaborative, which means their team members reside all over the world. And like specialized creative agents, they're tapped to collaborate on projects that maximize both their skill and their personal experience. Kind of like what you heard in the opening for this episode. Our guest today is the founder and sole employee of Superfriendly. You'll hear how and why he structured his agency the way he did, and why having the right people in the room is how you win. You will also hear how he reversed engineered his entire career from entry-level designer to agency strategist. And he'll talk about the double-edged sword of youthful arrogance. But the most interesting part of this conversation, to me at least, is how he and Chris talk about pricing. Now, we're all familiar with the various pricing models like hourly, value-based, cost plus, etc. But rarely do we stop and think about the ethics involved. Some people may think value-based pricing is unethical. Others may argue that charging hourly is. So who's right? And what's the most important part of the equation anyway? I will let you decide. But I suggest you listen to this episode first. Please enjoy our conversation with Dan Mall. All right, Dan, I'm super excited to have this conversation with you. I don't know why it took so long for me to figure out, like I just reach out. I don't know. I also imagine you being much, much older so there was that kind of age thing where I'm like, okay, let me just get my act together before I reach out to you. Oh, and then man. I see you, I'm like, damn, okay, we could have a conversation. Yes. Why not, and, right? Uh, don't be intimidated by my by my old age because it doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> the wisdom is like beyond your years. Okay. That's right. Uh, for people who don't, yeah. Uh, for people who don't know who you are, can you introduce yourself, please? Yeah, sure. My name is Dan Mall. I run a distributed design collaborative called Super Friendly. Um, I'm just outside of Philadelphia. Our team is all around the world. Um, I wrote some books on pricing. I talk about design. I've been doing design for a while. I don't know. How's that? That's beautiful. Uh, tell me a little bit about the name Super Friendly. I read on about it in your LinkedIn profile, but t- tell the people why Super Friendly. Yeah, cool. So, I mean, as with all good things in my life, it, it came from my wife. Um, when I started my agency, I had a name picked out. I did the branding. I did everything. And then she was like, eh. And I was like, what? What, what, what don't you like about it? She was like, I don't know. It just seems dark. Like you just need something that is super friendly. <laughs> uh, yep. 
And then as soon as she said that, it just kind of like tied back. Like I've always loved superheroes as a kid. I grew up watching the Super Friends. I'm a big Superman fan. You know, I love superhero mythology. So it just it just all clicked from there. Okay, we already have a lot in common. And I think you you wrote on on, I think it was LinkedIn about the concept of I, I think what some people might know is a fluid agency where there's you and you you clearly state you, you're an employee of one. That's how big your company is. Yep. And then you work with this big network of superstars, superheroes, right? Super friends. Yeah. Okay. Now, why did you decide to take that route versus, say, start to grow and have permanent team members? Uh, a couple of reasons. One is just so I've, I've been lucky in that when I started Super Friendly, I had worked at other agencies for, I think, 12 years or 13 years at that point. So I got a chance to look at how other folks grow agencies and grow teams on, on their dime. So I got to see how that went. And I saw the stress that having payroll has for some agency owners. So I'm like, oh, if I ever run my own thing, I never want to want to be in that position where, you know, I, I've seen one of my bosses lose 20 pounds in two weeks because he couldn't make payroll. He had to refinance his house. He had, you know, all these things happen. And I was like, I wonder if there's a way to be more fluid that to, to ride the ebb and flow of client work, you know, like how do, how do you ride the feast or famine in a way that you're not, you know, dipping below a certain amount or, or how do you normalize that a little bit more? So that was part of it. That was a, the big thing. And then the other thing was, um, I remember I worked for when I, I, the last agency I worked for was Big Spaceship uh, in New York. And I remember we pitched Crayola, uh, and that was one of the accounts that we had. And in the pitch, we went around kind of doing intros. So I went, I said, hey, I'm Dan, I'm the design director. And we had all the, the people on our team. And one of the team members, my friend Vic, he introduced himself as the senior strategist. And he said, you know, I'm the senior strategist. I used to be an elementary school teacher. And the client stopped us and said, like, well, hang on a sec. You're going to be the strategist on this project and you used to be an elementary school teacher? And he's like, yeah. And you know, Crayola does a lot of stuff for schools and teachers and parents and kids. And he said, well, then you win. And we're like, well, what do you mean? He's like, you win the pitch. We're going with you. And that was it. Wow. The, the, and, and it dawned on me that like, if you just have the right people in the room, sometimes that's where you win, like just off of that. And I was like, oh, I wonder if there's a model that has, you know, that, that when we have the right people at the table, then we win. Um, and I, it dawned on me that like, I can't employ all of those people, but maybe if I could have them in as part of a network and incentivize them for a period of time, Maybe there's something worthwhile there. So that's that's a lot of where the roots came from. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. You're you're a very common sense, like very approachable human being. I've watched other videos that you've made, and there's an energy about you that I think is really cool. So I'm gonna ask you a dark question because maybe that's not where your mind goes. Sure. Okay. <laughs> are those are there those moments when you're like, dang it, I had two other people do this other job, my life would be a little bit easier. I don't have to constantly rotate people in and out. Tell tell us a little bit about the the downsides of being a one person operation man every day every day i have that that thought so, yeah uh, because because okay, you know, we're gonna get real real yeah every time we we construct a team there is an element of reinventing the wheel and there's some some parts i like about that some parts are like you know when we reinvent the wheel it forces us to go well what's the process we're going to use on this one and what's the team we're going to use on this one and what's the but we never get the benefit of going like we never get the benefit of shorthand. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Like we can't say, oh, let's do this one like we did that other one because the people on the team are like, well, I wasn't on that other one though. So how did it go? Right. <laughs> you know, and you have to end up doing that. So there's just a lot of inefficiency to the model. I think we get more benefit than drawback, but it is a lot of reinventing the wheel, sometimes good and sometimes bad. Okay. Um, is it Has it ever been a problem when some clients raise an eyebrow? Like we're going to give you this really big project and it's just you. Uh, people get nervous about stuff like that. 
Yeah, totally. Um, that was definitely a problem in the beginning of Super Friendly. Now, almost nobody comes to Super Friendly for me. Um, you know, I, I get uh, I get a lot of people who are surprised when they you know they don't even know about me, which is weird to me. Like, because that's how clients first started coming to Super Friendly was off of my reputation. But as Super Friendly has grown over the years, it's going to be I think ten years as of next year. You know, folks come to Super Friendly for the work, which I'm proud about and I'm I'm happy about that. And so. So, you know, that that's the thing is people come for the work and they come to, you know, for the expertise that we have. And, you know, this is I know this will resonate with you. I've seen you kind of talk and teach about this stuff a lot, which is that the clients that that rubs them the wrong way, they self-select out very early on in the sales process. Like we don't get, you know, to like signing an agreement stage. And then they're like, wait, what's the model that you have? So, you know, we don't even want those people to contact us, you know, from a positioning standpoint. There are people who are like, well, that model is weird. And I'm like, cool, you should probably go and work with an agency that doesn't have that model because you'd probably like it better. It would probably be easier for you. And then the clients that do work with us are the ones that generally go like, well, that model makes a lot of sense. Why don't other people do that more? I'm like, right, exactly. We're going to be good fits. Mm. Okay. You just said something that just I'm having a hard time conceptually wrestling with in my mind, which is you're a company of one. You're the main contact point person, right? And then you bring together a team. So how can people come to super friendly and not even know who you are. This is like, what? That's impossible. <laughs> right. right. So I think, I think part of the misconception is that I'm not the contact person. Um, and oh. so, so even though I'm the only full-time employee, I'm the only W2 employee of the company. We have lots of people that have worked on super friendly things for many years. And then we have lots of people who have worked on only one thing and probably will only work on one thing. So we have the whole range. So we have six or seven people, we call it our, our back of house. We use kind of a restaurant metaphor where like there's front of house and then there's back of house. We have six or seven people that are super friendly back of house. We have a business development person. We have a head of operations. We have an admin, we have an accountant, we have legal. Um, so we have we have all of these these folks that work on landing the projects, working them out. And my job really is just to assemble teams. Um, you know, it's, it's figuring out what, what our super friends' motivations are, what their incentives are, and then matchmaking them to projects themselves. So, you know, a lot of clients will never interact with me from the course of first contact all the way to, uh, you know, to the, the project shipping that we're doing. A couple of clients, I tend to be like an executive sponsor for those clients or our important accounts and things like that. But for most of our clients, they have no idea who I am and will never talk to me. Okay, this is fascinating to me. There's there's more layers to this. And I, I promise to our listeners, it won't be all about me trying to understand Dan's business model. There's there's pricing stuff here. We'll have, we'll talk about some other ideas, but okay. I, I, I don't okay, take me through this. Hey, somebody reaches out uh, for a potential gig. Yep. Your 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 content marketing is working, your sales team is working, your everything's working for you. Who are they reaching out to then? Your yeah. best dev person? Yep. So usually they'll, you know, they'll come in through an email address. We have an info at superfriend.ly. Um, Joe, who's our head of business development, he's the one that ge generally handles that email address, even though all of us get that email. Joe is usually the first point of contact. So they talk to Joe. Joe usually talks to them about what they need, helps to kind of diagnose what they need, does the typical sales conversation and value conversation and all of that kind of stuff to assess that. He'll update me on that and uh, and Crystal, who's our head of operations. Um, and then we'll kind of talk about when do we need a team? What kind of team do we need for it? What's the value of the project generally? What could we do it for then against that value? How could we do it profitably? You know, so all of that kind of comes in that way through Joe. There are some times where we'll say like, hey, I think I need you to join a call with this client, you know, either because it's an important account or because there's something that I can do in that conversation to help land it better. 
Um, and then other times he goes like, I'll take it from here, dial, you know, let's read in a producer and then give me a producer as part of the sales conversation that can help transition that to a project once, once we win it. Um, once all of that stuff is taken care of, it moves over into our operation side and admin side. We'll write up agreements. Uh, we'll write up subcontractor agreements for our super friends. So all that happens in parallel between our legal, uh, who's Matt, and our, op our admin, uh, who's Nikki, the team producer. Right, so there's a lot of handoff that happens um, from there going into we land a project that then a team is is there to do. Okay, so these are all independent contractors, aka freelancers, who presumably also do other things besides doing super friendly things, right? Yep, that's right. So Joe okay. is a, Joe has his own business development consultancy called Clutch. Um, Nikki is the admin for multiple agencies. Uh, Matt is the legal counsel for lots of other agencies. Crystal does operations for a bunch of other folks too. So, you know, super friendly is not their dedicated full-time thing. Uh, they're doing that one, among other things. Okay. So how do they, how do they make money then? Are they paid some kind of uh, pro rata salary or how does that work? Yeah. So, so uh, each person is paid a little bit differently based on their preference. So like we adopt the headache of that, you know, which is like, that is a headache. It'd be easier if all of them were paid at the same way. Some are on a retainer basis. Uh, so that just comes out of super friendly overhead. And then some are on a sort of a commission structure or like a, some sort of profit sharing model where as we get paid by clients, they get paid out of that too. So it's, it's different for each person depending on their preference and honestly their season of life. So sometimes we change it based on somebody goes, I want to take time off or, you know, I want to spend more time with my kids or I want to devote most of my time to super friendly, you know, for the next year. So it depends really on, on the person. I see. Okay. The, the natural, I, I think there's a last question for this. The natural question is then, are, are you fearful? I mean, this is the question that people are asking. I don't, I don't think you are obviously that your biz dev person is the main contact point. And that at some point, this person's like, you know what? I, I'm not content with taking a percentage of this gig. I should just take 100% of this gig and I'll run it myself since that's pretty much what I'm doing for Dan. So how do you prevent that from happening? Or how, what's your take on that? So fearful. <laughs> I'm, I'm so scared. of <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. Um, but it's okay. a thing that, that he, you know, Joe and I are friends. Yeah. We've been working on this stuff, you know, working together for many years. I talked to him about this and I'd say to him like, look, man, I'm terrified that you would do this. And I've even recommended to him, why don't you do this? <laughs> you should do this. <laughs> and so I, I see my job as I just have to give him more upside and super friendly. So, and, and what I've learned about working with super friends, especially in this capacity is, you know, some of them want just security and a full-time thing. And, and I say to them, like, that's not what you're going to get at super friendly. Most people get something else out of it too, whether that's the ability to mentor or be mentored, the ability to work on things they wouldn't have to, to, to do otherwise. You know, so for Joe, I'm like, there are other upsides to why he works with super friendly than just the cash. You know, and so part of my job is to go like, let me make sure I can check all the boxes for him and for Crystal and for Nikki and for all of our super friends. Because if we're doing that, it's not always about money. It's about the combination of those things. And each person has a, a different dial, you know, on all of those. So I tend to look for people's incentives and I go, can we provide that? Yes or no. And that, you know, that's aligned with Super Friendly's mission. The way that we talk about it is it's to create better opportunities for those who wouldn't have had it otherwise. So if there's something that you can get at Super Friendly that you couldn't get anywhere else, I'm going to try to dial that up for you. If not, if it's like, you know, you could make the same money or the same connections or the same clients or the same teams somewhere else, you probably should. <laughs> you know, like you'd probably be better paid somewhere else. You'd probably be, you know, it would it would suck for you to be here if you could get all that stuff somewhere else. We just do a more difficult version of that. So why would you want to do that? So a lot of it is about alignments, you know, and, and a lot of it is about like if there's something here that's good for you that you won't get anywhere else, 
my part and the thing that I try to promise to our super friends is I will do the most that I can to, to dial that up to the, to the highest level for you that you want. And if we can't do that, I'll be honest about that too. Yeah. Okay. So pre-pandemic, were you all working remotely and has anything changed post-pandemic? Yeah, so definitely the style of work hasn't changed that much, although there's a couple of nuances. So we've always been distributed. I started Super Friendly in 2012, you know, and it was just me and then all, everybody else was distributed. So we have Super Friends around the world. The thing that has changed is the scale, but everybody works remotely and asynchronously and all that kind of stuff. The thing that's different though is everybody else is home too, right? So like my kids are home and everybody else's kids are home and you know, spouses are home and trying to work on the same, you know, Zoom link for two different calls at the same time from two different rooms. So that has become more complicated. And that's just been a thing where we've been like, well, let's just be more forgiving about that. You know, let's just have more grace for that as we can. If your if your partner is trying to have the same you know a call at the same time, we will move that call so that your partner can have the call at that time. So how can we bend a little bit more, especially because we've been doing this longer than everybody else? Has. The whole world figured out how to do Zoom you know in the last year, but we've been doing it for the last five years. The whole world figured out remote working, but we've been doing it for the last ten years. So because we have that privilege, maybe we could bend a little bit more because we can accommodate it better than, than probably other folks can. So we try to do that. It doesn't always work, but that's the, the general stance, I think. Do you ever wake up in a cold sweat at night and think, oh my God, did, did, did the team deliver the right files? Did, did they cover that one client note? Because you're not as involved maybe, or maybe you are, I don't know. I am not very involved. I have been, I don't wake, wake up in a cold sweat but because the work that I do that is very hard for me is to trust the team. Like if I didn't, then I have no business running a company like this, <laughs> you know, like that. So that, I think that's a thing where I sleep pretty well. Um, I don't wake up going like, oh my gosh, did they, did they deliver that? Because I assume that they either did or they didn't. And I'm like, either way, it's cool. We can figure that out. So I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty collected on that. I think, I think if that kind of stuff stressed me out or for, for anybody who, if that stuff stresses you out, this is not the right model for you. Like there's gotta be trust in the team. Okay. That's good to know because people are listening to this and they're going to be thinking, man, I'm going to let everybody go. I'm going to go to this model, super friendly style, but it requires a certain personality and, and way of being and, and mindset for this to work because I have a full-time team and I sometimes sit there and think, did, did the producer pass this note along to the designer and is the designer do give this to the developer? Is this all in check? And sometimes I just wake up like, oh my God, I'm not sure that's right. And every once in a while I do one of those spot checks and every once in a while it's like, oh my God, the ball would have been dropped. Thank God I asked that question. And it's sometimes really basic things. Like for example, our team doesn't do a lot of print work. And then I was sitting there thinking, I wonder if all the images and everything they did was CMYK because sometimes they don't know that. Right. And of course, that's the time I check and I'm like, oh my God, how can we do this? Everybody should know this, but they don't. Yep. And that's why I asked you that question. Yeah. I mean, if you run a full-time thing and you're like, this sounds better, don't do that. <laughs> like, you know, part, part of how I feel about agency owners is that, you know, for better or worse, I forget the name of it. The, there's a law, Conway's law, I think. The idea that for better or worse, agencies or organizations adopt the personality of their founder, right? So like, Super friendly is more or less me because I started it. And so it capitalizes on my superpowers, which is my superpowers is even before super friendly, long before that, 
I collected a network of people. Like I love meeting people. I love knowing what they're up to. I've always done that, even before I had the idea to start an agency this way. So it's easy for me to run a network-based agency because that's what I do anyway. You know, it's easy for, so my agency capitalizes on the things that I do well. If you don't do those things well, you would suck at this job, you know, in the same way that I would suck at running a full-time agent. I have no idea how to do that. And my skills don't don't put me in a, in a place where I could do that successfully, which is why I don't run that kind of agency. I think I would do a poor job of that. So I really feel like I run the agency that I feel very equipped to, to run. And that means I do things differently than, than others, others. And sometimes that's more difficult for me, but I adopt that cost because it's actually easier for me to do that. So, you know, definitely don't, don't throw it all, you know, throw, throw in the towel if you run a full-time company for anybody listening, um, you know, because that probably, you know, hopefully that is capitalizing on the, the stuff that you do really well, um, which is maybe, you know, providing security for your team or providing opportunities for them or, you know, or any of that stuff. The other thing, and I find myself saying this a lot to our team is we can't eliminate mistakes, mis- mistakes. So, you know, if, if our quality control is to check things over and over again before they go out because they're used to eliminate mistakes, I think that sets up the wrong culture. It basically says, like, we don't tolerate mistakes here. And I, I like to I, I would rather work on the opposite, which is everybody's going to make mistakes. So what do we do about those? Let's just accept that mistakes are going to go out. Yes, it's going to go to the printer RGB like it's going to happen, you know, no matter. what. So let's put a process in place for what we do about that. And then hopefully that never comes up, but I would rather spend the work on that. I'd rather spend the work going like, how do we make it okay for people to screw up? Because that's the thing that cripples most super friends, especially new ones. They come in and they are so worried about doing things really well. So what do they do? They eliminate risk. They do only the things that they know how to do and have done before. And I'm like, well, where are you being creative? Where are you taking risks? And they're like, oh, no, no, I don't want to do that because I don't want to mess up. And I'm like, yeah, but in order for you to do something really cool, I kind of need you to have the ability to mess up. You know, because otherwise, you know, how do we know if we did something really cool or something really new? So I'd rather encourage that culture rather than trying to like quality control the mistakes out of the process. Mm. So is one of the solutions is to have great insurance, like errors and emissions and just general insurance, because that's usually like your safety net. Absolutely. We have that. We pay for it. It's well worth, you know, luckily in the 10 years we haven't had to use it. We got close once, um, but okay. we haven't had to use it. But that's definitely a good safety net. And then the other thing is knowing that there's a support system around you. So everyone at Super Friendly has a support system, uh, has at least one person that is in charge of them. Um, and everybody knows that and they know who they can go to. Um, and so, you know, we try to kind of set that to go like anything that happens, it's OK. You know, like if it went out the wrong way, we'll deal with it. We'll adopt the cost. So a lot of that is us having enough margin to go, well, we'll get that reprinted because we have to, you know, those hundred thousand copies are down the drain. <laughs> but like we can we can do it again, you know, and we'll eat the cost of that as a way to support our super friends. And that's not, there's no penalty to that. It's not like, ah, we gotta waste our margin on this now. It's like, no, that's why we have it. We have it so that you learn now, next time, you're not gonna, you're not gonna send an RGB thing to the press. Okay. I think you said this before, this model is highly inefficient, right? Yes. Inefficiency built into the business model. And it's like, that's, that's okay. Because on the opposite side of inefficiencies, innovation, and you can't have one and the other like you can't be efficient and innovative 100 percent. yes okay all right this takes me let's let's do a, a pivot here this cool. takes me to i think it's 2016 when you published the book pricing design which is an ebook i believe right yep. and i'm just looking at the chronology of your timeline your education i think you graduated from drexel in 2006 so that's that's right that's only 10 years after getting out of school yep 
What is a young man who just graduated from school writing a book on pricing? What do you, what business do you have writing a book on pricing? <laughs> None. <laughs> just 10 years out. Yeah, I have no business doing it. I think part of, <laughs> part of you know, and, and I had no business teaching at the time. I had no business starting a business. I had no business running, you know, big accounts. But yet people put me in those positions. So I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll try it. I think one of the things I've learned is I don't really try to teach too much. I just try to share. Because I think there's a difference between saying to someone, you should do it this way and saying, here's the way that I did it, right? Because like people can glean from either of those things. I'm less comfortable, honestly, saying like, this is what you should do uh, because I don't know what you should do. I don't know you. <laughs> so how can I give you advice about that? Um, so to me, you know, I wrote a book about pricing less to say to someone, you should value price. Do I think people should value price? I think so. I think it'd be more helpful for them, but I don't know that. But instead it was me saying, let me tell you how I've been able to make a lot more money than I thought I, I could. This is how I did it. If that works for you, great. If you need help with that, here are some techniques. Um, so it's less about trying to convince someone of something or doing something a different way than sharing my experience. And that's what I tried to do in writing the book is like, all right, in my 10 years of working at companies and freelancing on the side, here are some things that I've learned. Now, five years later, are there some things that I would rewrite in the book? Absolutely. If I were to do a V2, I would change a bunch of sections and I would update a bunch of things and I would, I would change a lot. Um, but at that time, that reflected my moment in time of what I'd learned so far in my career. Um, and, and that's what I tried to do with that book. And I, I feel pretty good that I, I was able to accomplish that. This is fascinating to me because you're, you're 10 years out of school. You're sharing. You're not necessarily teaching. You're saying, here's how I've done it. And if this helps you, I'm going to go for it whatever makes sense. So you felt a pain point out there and you're just doing this because obviously if there wasn't a pain point, there would be no need, right? Totally. So you yes. do this in its imperfect version, but it encapsulates what you knew at that point in time. Here's what kind of strikes me is, is really fascinating about you. I go to the resources. I'm going to ask you this question. I hope I'm not putting you on the spot. Sure. On page 47, there's a list of like 10 books here that you that you presumably have read, Implementing Value Pricing, Management mm -hmm. Challenges. There's a whole bunch on here. Have you read all those books when you wrote this? Yes. Okay. This is this is where I want to get into your mindset here. Okay. I've been running my business now for 25 years. I've read one of those books. And yours. Because <laughs> okay. yours is not on the list. Yeah, right? yeah, you sure. can't reference yourself. <laughs> like, yeah. Okay. So what's in the mind of a young Dan where you're like, you know what? Instead of reading about design topography, user experience, uh, comic books, I'm just going to dive in and read all these books on business, financing, and pricing. <laughs> right? What gotcha. is going on with you? Okay, cool. So uh, I'll flash back to my agency days. Um, I remember, so I started as a developer. I didn't start as a designer. Uh, right. So uh, when I was at Drexel in school, um, the program that I was in, I initially went to be an animator because I wanted to make Pixar movies. And then, and then I realized like, oh, I suck at that. <laughs> I'm actually not very good at that when I was in school. And I was lucky that the program I was in, it's called Digital Media. It was half 3D animation and, and modeling. And then the other half was like interactive, interactivity. So we learned Director and Flash and HTML and you know, all sorts of stuff like that. So I had an, as much of a coding skill set as I did a design skill set. So I thought I was going to be a developer coming out of school. And so I got the first couple agency jobs as a developer. And I remember being, being handed comps by designers and they would be like, build this. And I'm like, cool, I have an idea. And they're like, oh, no, 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 we're, we're past the idea stage. And I was like, what? That seems dumb. Like, you're like, there's a time where ideas are done. Like, that seems weird. So I just kind of was hitting my head against the wall. Like, 
trying to implement ideas. Like I have ideas. I, I think I have good ideas, or at least I want to talk about them, but I was being kind of censored in that way, not maliciously by anybody, but it was just like, well, this is the wrong time in the process. So my thought was, well, let me get farther up in the process then. So what I did was I took my portfolio down. I, tr I took every design gig that I could, freelancing, agency. And then I, a year later, I had enough work to put up a new portfolio as a designer. And so I got, to, I got hired as a designer. And so now as a designer, I'm like, all right, well, I've got ideas. And even at that point, it's like, well, no, 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 we're done with the ideas. The information architect came up with the ideas for the site. And like, you're just, you just have to, to skin it. I'm like, well, that's dumb too. <laughs> like, okay, so I just kept working my way up the chain. Well, let me learn information architecture. Okay, so I learned that. Let me learn, you know, let me learn strategy. And then let me learn, and then even then, like we start the project and I'm like, okay, I have some ideas on how we could do this project. Oh, no, no, we already sold the project to the client. So it's already in the statement of work that we have to do two rounds of wireframes. I'm like, but what if we shouldn't do wireframes though? Oh, boy, I don't know, that's what we sold the client. I'm like, well, that's dumb. <laughs> so, so then I'm like, okay, well, how do I even get farther up in the process? So that's when I started asking my, my boss, could I see the agreement? And he was like, why? I'm like, well, I just want to see what we've agreed to. And he's like, yeah, okay. So he shared them with me and I'd look through them and I go, well, why are we charging them this much? And why are we charging them that much for this thing that I don't think? So it was just reverse engineering all the way up the chain to me. And then what I realized was, oh, the place to influence the project or the work is in the sales cycle. Like that's where you have real influence. And so now, you know, I'm a salesperson, right? Because, because of all that. So that was in the mind of young Dan, young Dan the designer is like, where can I have influence? And I realized, you know, on an agency side or in a service business, you have influence in the sales process because that's where you get the ability to shape. And, you know, I didn't have any of these words, you know, then, but I had the instincts of like, I want to be able to shape the work. I want to be able to have impact on it and have influence on it. Uh, and that was the place that, that, that I learned. So then I started reading about economics and about like, well, so how do we price this? What, you know, $150 an hour, where do, we, where do we get that number from? Like who made, did we make that up? Did someone else charge that? So it just started a whole flurry of research for me into, well, how do we shape it at that level? And what are all the things that I need to know to be educated there? How old are you when you're like, at that point, when you're like, let's show me, can I see the bids? Can I see the scope of work? 23. Can I, 23. Yeah. Okay. Okay. There's something about a 23-year-old who has these kinds of questions, this mind, this brain that you have. If I were to rewind the tape and say, what kind of student were you like in high school? How would you answer that question? Uh, I was an average student um, because I felt like school was about memorization to me. And I was like, I don't, but I don't memorize things well. I've never been good at memorization stuff. So like history, I did really poorly at and all the things where I could, where I could, um, I have to memorize something. I did really poorly at that. All the things where I had to invent something or be creative about something, those were where I came alive. You know, and, and this is all in hindsight. I didn't, I didn't know that then. As I reflect on it now, I'm like, those are the things that I was really interested in. And, and I was also very arrogant, right? So like that's, that comes with this too, is, is like, for better or worse, I was very arrogant. I remember, I remember a time where at work, a, co a colleague said this to me. Also, my, my wife now and my girlfriend at the time said this to me and my brother. All in the same week, they said to me, you're really difficult to be around. Like, you just think that you know everything. And I, and like, if it was just one of them that had said that to me, I'd be like, ah, whatever, I don't, yeah. But the fact that all three of them, like people that I care about and people that whose opinions mean something to me said that to me, I was like, well, maybe I should think about how I actually relate to people in the world a little bit more than I do. Um, I remember in a review with my boss, he, <laughs> I said to him at one point, I said, you know, I write the best CSS on the planet. 
So this is why I think that I deserve that raise. And he's like, Dan, the amount of hubris that you have to have to say that to me, like, even if it was true, just to say that is like, man. So I definitely have had, a, I was definitely very, very arrogant. I think I still have a touch of that now. I try to be a little bit more humble about it now. Um, I think I've learned to be softer about that, but there's still, it still definitely is there. But you know, 22 year old Dan, 18 year old Dan was firing on all cylinders and pretty brazen about, about stuff like that. Can I see the contract? You know, like kind of kicking doors in, in in that way. Time for a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Dan. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to our conversation with Dan Mall. You you call it arrogance, but maybe it's there's two parts to this, which is youth. It's like you're you're too dumb to know that you don't know and you can't say, so you it's just true. do and say anyways, right? Yeah. So there's ignorance, and I think ignorance is actually when it's used the right way can actually be very powerful because you don't know the rules, you didn't know that you were breaking the rules, but you just wind up inventing something new. The other part to it is. There's a there's a level of self awareness uh, in terms of self confidence, and did that come from a childhood? Did that come from one or both of your parents or a mentor or, or a sibling in your life that gave you this? Uh, I I credit my parents a lot for that. So my parents are both immigrants. My dad is from Pakistan. My mom's from the Philippines, and both of them came from very very poor families. Came to the U.S. with nothing. You know, they met in New York. Um, but both of them came to the U.S. on full ride scholarships because that was the only way that they could get in school. And my mom was in a nursing program. My dad's an accountant and a, and a CFO now. Um, both of them, their family. So my dad has seven brothers and sisters. My mom has f- three sisters. All of their families pooled their money together to send them to the U.S., you know, to make something of themselves. And like, you know, you go make something of yourself. We will all work manual labor jobs here and raise the money to support you. And then the, the unstated expectation was you be successful, then you help us back home, right? Like whether it's sending money back home or bringing us to the U.S. and things like that. So my parents are very self-made, you know, from from the beginning. Like we, you know, I grew up in North Philly. We didn't have a lot of money. Um, and the I think just the, I don't know if I would call it this. I don't know if my parents would call it this, but the, the confidence to be able to come from nothing and then make something of it. Like that, there's a tremendous amount of like, you just got to grind on some of this stuff. So I observed that my whole life without knowing that that's what I was observing. You know, I I observed my parents. I mean, my dad is wealthy now, like just straight up wealthy. And he made that wealth for himself. Like, and he had mentors and he had teachers and he had people to help them, but not a lot, not as many as as many as I had. So like seeing that growing up was like, well, that's how, you know, that's how you work. That's how you start very humble 
and make something of yourself. So I think a lot of that came from them just seeing that. Um, I remember my mom, you know, my mom has like immigrant confidence, you know, where like the, I remember going to stores and having a bunch of old white ladies yell at her for me and my brother like messing around in the aisles and her just not skipping a beat and like really just giving it back to them, you know? So it's like, like that confidence I only recognize in, in hindsight as I'm older, but I grew up around that. So, you know, seeing my parents do that, I think really gave me like, all right, well, if they made something of themselves, I could probably make something of myself too. Mm. So in, in a way, this immigrant mentality, because there's two ways that immigrants, I think, at least two ways, exists, right? One is they're scared. They're always kind of flying under the radar. They're, they're considered meek and they don't speak up for themselves. And that's why a lot of like um, Asians will deal with a lot of social injustice because it's like, keep your head low, don't make a lot of noise. And there's the other kind of immigrants, like I have a right to be here just like every single other person. I've sacrificed too much. Too many people are counting on me for me to be tiptoeing through this. And you saw that, that was a part of the blueprint. And you just, that's just normal reality for you. It's yep. not until your girlfriend, um, your boss and somebody else or your friend tells you, yo, dude, you just chill on the arrogant sauce a little bit. Yeah, totally. You're a little too high on that. Yes, right? totally right. Yep. Okay. All right. So you you go in and you start reading these books. And now that I, I didn't realize this because, you know, uh, like new media, that just means a thousand things depending on <laughs> who you talk to. Sure. Right? So this mindset of yours, thinking that you're going to be a developer, I think is uh, like... My, my older brother, he and I are exact opposites in some ways. He's a software engineer. He's super logical, very binary. Things either make sense or they do not. He's highly educated. I am not. I'm the exact opposite. So he's very a systematic kind of thinker, like system thinking and system design. And I can see, I, I guess, and tell me if I'm wrong here, a young Dan saying, you know, this should be the way. Therefore, I would just do it. And I'm going to read these books, mofo. You can't stop me. Yep. And just like the Terminator, you go and crush these books. Totally. A very astute. Okay. Like young Dan was a very black and white kind of person. It's this way or it's that way. I learned this and I know it. Like uh, older Dan is a bit more nuanced in his approach, you know, now. Like I think that comes <laughs> with, with some age. It comes with having, you yeah. know, being married. It comes with having kids, I think. Um, so I'm a bit more soft on that. I'm a bit more shades of gray on it. But, you know, young Dan was was like, you know, it's either logical or it doesn't or you should not talk to me. <laughs> you know, that, right. that kind of attitude. It's like it has to make sense or it doesn't make sense at all. And exactly. Yep. There's no so, middle ground. Totally. Okay. All right. So maybe maybe this is just um, maybe this is me outing myself a little bit. Not nonfiction books, uh, books that are like textbooks, theory, things that uh, I tried to escape normal school from used to not appeal to me. Now that's all I read. So I have some catching up to do and I'm surrounded by books I have yet to read, but I'm just fascinated by the title and the ideas in them. But you, you've actually read them and then you go and write your book. And I have to say, like, it's around 50 pages ish, yeah. right? Yep. Something like that. And it's really just uh, it's funny because now I know you a little bit better by watching your videos. Your personality is sprinkled in there. You can't tell at the beginning because it's like, all right, this is a book <laughs> on pricing. It's called Pricing Design. Right. Yep. And and then you sprinkle these little stories and these jokes and it's like, OK. I, I get who you are in this and it's a wonderful read. So if you're a creative person and you're sitting there scratching your head and you've not been able to escape hourly based pricing and you, you feel like you're working harder for less money, I highly rec recommend that you pick up this book. You can read it in a, in a few hours. You really can because it's just 50 pages. There isn't a lot of fat in there and I like books like this. You're, you're not messing around. Okay. Can you tell us 
Okay, I'm just going to set you up here. Yeah, There's sure. a story in there about Esther, not her real name, and what you learned about using the saving the date and what that taught you and where, where that led you. Yeah, totally. So um, I remember when I was first freelancing, and you know, the context of this is I, I'd always have a full-time job. I worked at agencies, and then I would always work. I would always freelance outside of that. And I started freelancing and I wrote an article about this too. I started freelancing to get things where like, okay, I had a full-time job, but like, I want a new camera. So, okay, I'd freelance for a new camera. And what would the price of the freelance job be? Well, the price of a new camera. So if a new camera was, you know, a thousand bucks, I would do that next freelance gig for a thousand bucks because that was my camera gig. If I wanted a new TV, if I wanted to go on vacation, if I wanted to buy, you know, put a down payment on a car, like that's what I freelanced for. So I call it object value pricing, right? Which is like the value of this gig is whatever object I want to get. So that's how I started. And so, I was freelancing on the side of, of agency work, which meant I had a lot of leverage because if a client said no to me, then I would just go like, that's fine. I don't need the cash. I'm getting paid well at the agency already. So a ton of leverage that I could experiment with and, and I could take a lot of risks because it actually wasn't that risky. So there's this one client that um, I was freelancing, you know, this is kind of on the side of a full-time agency work. And this client wanted to book me six months out because I was already booked six months out, like on the side. And I was like, I don't want to be booked out six months from now, because what if I turn away a bunch of gigs and then five months from now, this person drops out, right? Esther says like, oh, no, never mind. I don't want to work with you anymore. So I, I just sent her like a, like a go away price, you know, like the one that you just send to clients is just astronomical. And you go like, yeah, they're never going to say yes to this. So I basically said to her, look, if you want to book me out, you know, it's March now, if you want to book me out in October, you have to pay me an additional $10,000 to hold the time. It's not a deposit, right? That's not like taking the initial $10,000. You know, I think the project was $10,000 maybe. So it's not, it's not a deposit. It is an additional fee to just hold my time for that amount. And mostly I expected her to be like, ridiculous, no way. And I did hear back from her. And, but then one day I opened my mailbox and there was a check for $10,000. And I was like, it just, it just broke my brain and like how it defied reason. Because if I tried to rationalize it by like, Wait, but if I break that down as an hourly rate, like, but I'm not even doing any work here. Like, so how do I rationalize this? And the only way that I could rationalize it is people pay for things that are important to them. Like, that's it. And that's the thing that turned me on to value pricing. It's like, well, if I could just make every project something that's important to the client, wouldn't they pay a lot of money for that? Like, and here's an example of that. Here's at least one piece of evidence to that, toward that idea. So that kind of opened my mind to the idea of value pricing is if I could hunt for what's important to the client rather than trying to do it input wise, like, oh, here's how many hours I have and here's my made up hourly rate. Like instead, what's important to you? What's it, and then what's it worth to you? And then is it worth it to me to do it for that too? Great, well, we're in business then. And, and what I also realized from that experience is with, with her paying that $10,000, that additional $10,000, I was like, well, she really wants to work with me. And now I really wanna work with her. And I crushed that project. I did such a good job because she put that trust in me like literally put her money where her mouth was, gave, gave to me. And I was like, I'm going to over deliver on every single thing on this. Cause you know why? Cause I want to do a good job for someone who believes in me. So like, it just created all of these good things that came from the idea that like, we just focused on what was important. I did it by accident in that version, but it made me go like, well, what happens if I, if I do that on purpose next time, you know, and that kind of opened, opened the door to, you know, I'm getting out of hourly rates. I'm getting out of time-based billing and all that stuff. And instead really just hunting for value in every, in every client conversation. So that moment uh, with Esther was like an epiphany for you. You were thinking, I'm trying my best to kill this thing because I don't want a six-month commitment because who knows what you'll be doing. You might want to go on vacation. Who knows? 
And then the unexpected happened, which is Esther sends you a check. And now you're, I think you're post-rationalizing. It's like, how does this make sense? I'm going to just construct a narrative. And, you know, here's the thing about narratives. It could have been anything you wanted. Absolutely. Right? (laughs) Your narrative was, what the hell is going on? Why would somebody do this? And the narrative that you told yourself is, if it's valuable enough to someone, it doesn't really matter what the terms and conditions are, they will pay. Yep. And you you bumped into it and then you went on this journey to figure this stuff out, right? Yep, absolutely. And yep. it changes your life. Okay, that's the catalyst for this. Okay. So in the book, you you write like there are primarily three pricing methods. Can you talk to us what the three primary pricing methods are? Yeah, I forget what they are off the top of my head, but you know, hourly. Okay, I can one. tell you. Yeah, please tell me. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while, right? Yeah. So you're talking about the industry standard, the cost plus, or the opportunity cost. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. So the the, the general gist there is what a lot of people do, how they price, and this is not necessarily a bad thing. Let me preface this to say, when people ask me like, how should I price? I don't say value pricing. What I say first is whichever method you understand best, right? Like whichever method you understand best and then it works for you. Because I think if you try to do value pricing and you don't get it, you will mess it up. Like you won't do a good job. If you try to do hourly pricing and you don't understand it, you will mess that up too. So I know tons of agencies and freelancers that are very profitable doing hourly billing and hourly, you know, a lot of people say like, this saved my agency doing hourly. Great, continue on with that then. And then I know a bunch of people who are like, hourly sunk us, you know, like we cannot run a business on that. So if you don't get it, cool. So what I try to do is go like, well, let me help you get all of these things and then you can pick. So hourly, you know, our industry standard, is usually the one that lots of students start with, you know, lots of free, new freelancers. They go like, I don't know what to charge. And they ask a friend, what do you charge? Uh, I charge 70 bucks an hour. Okay, cool. You ask another friend, I charge 80 bucks an hour. You, char- you ask another friend, I charge 90 bucks an hour. And you go, all right, well, I'm going to split the difference. I'm going to charge 80 bucks an hour because that's the average of what I asked all the friends for. And that's fine. You know, if that works for you and you're profitable doing that, go for it. I think the problem with that is is the term industry standard. It means that you are just doing the standard stuff. It means that every client that comes to you will be able to price shop. So if you're in the middle of that set, sucks for you. Because if you're the lowest in that set, you actually could win on price because you're cheaper than everybody else. If you're at the top of that set, maybe the client will go like, well, maybe this person is a little bit more premium or does something a little bit different than everybody else. If you're right in the middle, it sucks. Like, cause there's no reason to pick you other than like, I don't know, I like that person or I like their, the way that they write emails or, you know, something, something that's different. So that break, that kind of pricing breaks down pretty quickly. So then you get into cost plus and that's what most agencies do is they go, what is our cost to do this? And they calculate their, you know, their salary of their team and all this kind of stuff. And they go, well, we can't just charge that because we'll, we'll just break even. So we're just add a little bit of margin to that. That's the plus part. And so the, you know, the cost plus. Um, is like you figure out your cost, you add a little bit of margin to that, and then that's what you come up with. So, you know, on average, we charge, or, or we cost $40 an hour for a developer, for a designer, you know, and we don't want to just charge $40 an hour. So we'll add a little bit of margin on that. Let's say we'll add 100% margin on that. So $80 an hour is what we'll charge. We have a $40 margin an hour. Um, and then we'll charge the client $80 an hour. Well, the problem with that is what if the client doesn't, can't pay $80 an hour, they can only pay $60 an hour. So what do you do now? And what most agencies do is they cut their margin. They go, all right, instead of taking $40 of margin, we'll take $20 of margin. And then that's where you reduce your profit before you even started the gig. So, so that breaks down you know, at some point too. Again, lots of folks have made a good business doing cost plus, but it's hard to negotiate and it's hard to find value with your clients. It's hard to connect with your clients because, it, because cost plus is kind of a take it or leave it price unless you are compromising the price in which case well then what are the you might as well just tell your client like well do you tell us what you want to pay and then we'll just do that 
right? So it's like, it, it, either, it either is the client at your mercy or you are at the client's mercy. It's, it's win-lose, you know, cost plus generally. And then opportunity cost is kind of what I talked about before, which is like, what's worth it for both parties? Is it worth it to you and worth it to me? Like, is it worth it to you to spend $10,000? And is it worth it to me to do the job for $10,000 or $1,000 or $100,000 or whatever the amount is? If it's worth it to you and worth it to me, it's win-win. Uh, and so that's the, that's the thing about, about value pricing. And this is the thing that I didn't write about in the book. And had I, had I written it now, I would have tried to add this, this idea and this concept is that a value price is always a win-win price. It has to be a win-win price. It means you are getting some value out of doing the work and the client is getting some value out of you doing the work. Because then both parties are profitable and that combination of value, uh, the combination of profit, excuse me, is what we call value. That's what value means. It means all of the profit that has been generated from this transaction, whether it's financial profit or some other form of profit, people are happier or they get more time back or whatever, those count as profit too. So all of the profit that's created in the transaction is value, and that's usually based on opportunity. So there are some folks, you know, I have some friends who are excellent consultants and excellent agency owners, and you know, they will get a project, like they get a great project from a great client, and the client says, I'll spend $100,000 on this, and they go, I'm sorry, not worth my time, you know, not worth my effort, not worth my energy, not worth my weekend, not worth, you know, whatever, which seems like an incredibly privileged thing to do, but that doesn't mean it's not true. You know, like for some folks, $100,000 is not worth their effort. For some, a $10,000 project is not worth their effort or a $1,000 project is not worth their effort. So that's the thing is like for a good transaction, it has to be win-win for, for every, every person. So I'm going to dive too deeply into that, but that's, those are generally the three kind of methods that I describe them. Okay. So I've been talking about this for some time. So there naturally I have a reservoir of challenges and objections sure. to what you just said. Not because I believe it, but because people believe this. Here's what people say. Uh, Chris, you're just putting a fancy label on something to make yourself feel superior and some people to feel inferior. I'm like, no, I'm, trust me, I'm not doing that. Right. It may be how you feel about it. I'm not going to deny your feelings, but okay. So what they say is if you value base a client at $10,000, let's just say that you're able to have the money conversation and it's $10,000. And then you wind up working on it for 100 hours. Then your effective hourly rate is 100 bucks an hour. Why don't you just call it that you're charging 100 bucks an hour, Chris? Right. How would you respond to that, Dan? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a good objection. It's a common objection, too. So I think there's a couple of things that go into that. The, the first thing is there's a misnomer or misconception about value pricing that value pricing just means like you charge a client as much as you can. And that is not value pricing. Value pricing means that you are trying to ascertain the value of the work objectively. Not, not gut feeling, not as much as I can charge, not any of that stuff. So objectively, you have to come to the number of the value of the work. How did you get to $10,000? Not because you felt like it, but because you did some calculation and you said, based on your, you know, whatever, your current revenue, based on what I think my work would add. And there's some amount of speculation to this, but it's got to be based in some reality. I think I can get you about $10,000 more. So the value of the work is $10,000. That doesn't mean you should charge $10,000, right? Because who would spend $10,000 to lose $10,000? I don't know that a lot of companies would. So you're charging a portion of that. So if the value of the work is $10,000, maybe you would charge $5,000 or $2,000 or $1,000, some percentage of, of that probably. And so when somebody says, yeah, but then I have to work 100 hours on it, I'm like, well, and this is one of the things I learned from, what book is this? Think Implementing Value Pricing by Ron Baker is the idea that value drives cost. 
not the other way around. If you're doing it the other way around, you're just cost plus again. You're not value pricing anymore. So what does that mean? It means your job then as the expert is to find a way to not do it in 100 hours, to do it in 10 instead, or five or one. Can you do that, right? And that's your, that's you as a service provider, that's your job to figure out, you know, can I do it in less than 100 hours? If your answer is, oh, I don't know, the work takes what it takes, I have an unpopular response to that I'll preface to say, maybe you're not as good at your work as you think you are, right? Because that's what experts do. Experts are really good at their work and they go, I know how I can create this value confidently, not arrogantly, you know, young Dan would have been arrogant about it. You know, older nuanced Dan is a little bit more like, yeah, I believe that I can do this, you know, and why? Because I have a track record of doing it in the past. I have good inclinations. I have good entrees. Client trust me on that or don't, you know, if you don't, that's fine. You know, we can walk. So, so I think those are all the things that kind of go into that is if you are shackled by the fact that you can only do this in a hundred hours, Hopefully you know that in advance and you would turn down the gig in advance because you know you're not gonna be profitable. If the only way that you can figure out if you're profitable is during the work, you're probably not as good as the work as you thought. And there's probably more work that you can do up front to actually identify some of that stuff. Now, that's not easy for people to hear, you know, but no, that's not. my honest answer to that. But if the person that I'm imagining who's saying this to you is still not buying it, their second pushback to you is like, Dan, Chris, I don't care. You're just, again, you're just like using labels. You're just using some trickery here. Yeah. If at the end of the day, it takes you five or 30 hours or a hundred hours to finish the work. If you divide the, the the amount of money you charge, in this case, 10,000 by the hours that you work, that's your effective hourly rate. They still say, you're just trying to call this something else. And to that, you would respond by saying, uh, yes, I am. Yes, I am trying to call it something else because you know why? <laughs> you know why? Because when I say to a client, so let me tell you what my effectively hour, hourly rate is. Um, and I do that by, I track my time. I know how much time I work on everything. And I also know how much money I've made. My Dan's effective hourly rate right now is $814. So let's call it that. Let's call it an $814 hourly rate. So if I say to the next client, my effective hourly rate is $814. I lose the gig immediately. Done. Like we're done. That's it. Yep. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not anyone that they perceive to be able to make that amount of money. Now, if you ask my former clients and, and, and you ask them like, was the money worth it? They would go, yeah, yeah, it was because we got this amount of return or we got this conversion or what, you know, whatever the goals were. Yes, money well spent. But now trying to sell it with that framing, you know, my hourly rate is this, it doesn't work. So what you need is a new frame on it, right? So like a, an analogy that I always talk about is like there, a painting that you put on the wall, depending on the frame that you put on it, it looks terrible or it looks great. It has nothing to do with the value of the painting itself. It's how you frame it, literally how you frame it. So same thing is true in the sales process. How you frame it to the client is, is, is the work, right? So, so am I trying to put a fancy label on it? I don't know about the word fancy. You're just being insulting by saying fancy. I'm trying to put a different label on it you know, because they don't, they don't get it if I frame it one way, but they totally get it if I frame it another way. That's called being a good communicator, right? It's not, and, and it's on you to do that ethically, because if you're not doing that ethically, then you're just being a sleazy salesperson. If you're doing that ethically because you know you can create value for the client, I call that being helpful. Okay, they're, they're, I'm glad you brought up this word ethics and unethical. Uh, how does one do this unethically? Okay, so this is a contentious uh, response that I have to this, right? This is usually lights some people on fire when I say this. Uh, and I'm, I'm not the only one to, to have said this. I know that Jonathan Stark has said this in a bunch of his stuff. I, I think that you might have said it too, Chris, but I've, I've heard this in a bunch of places. Charging hourly is unethical. 
right? Okay, so let's let's break that down. Well, why why is that unethical? Because you know, and maybe unethical is too strong of a word there. But you know, ethics basically means what is right to do within a given group or a given set of circumstances, right? So what we accept, what what is acceptable as correct. So, so within our given group, if I say to a client, well, I just charge eight hundred fourteen dollars. That's my that's my hourly rate, and they go, okay, we'll work with you. Should I take their money? Like, is it ethical for me to take them? I mean, that's my rate. They agreed to it. Like, and and this is a bit of a caricature, but usually when you give a client an hourly rate, usually you're not having value conversations. You're just saying, this is what I do. You know, like, and so you're not talking about how you can deliver value to them. And to me, that's the ethical part. The ethical part is if you're a service provider, you should actually be providing a service, not just charging. You know, charging for what you do, and, and there's a lot of a lot of people that put stock into their effort as opposed to the outcome. Well, I don't know. I'm going to work 100 hours on this. So, do you deserve to get paid for your 100 hours that you put on this if you didn't actually achieve good outcomes? Well, I did the work, and here's where it gets even even more contentious. That's a pretty Marxist idea, right? Like that 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 gets into the labor theory of value. That gets in like that style is, is that the work itself has value, not the outcome of the work, right? And maybe that's what you believe. I've found it hard to understand that, which is why I don't do it that way. Cause I'm like, I don't think that my work has, I don't think the fact that I did the work has value. I think that the outcome that the work brings has value. And so that's what I try to sell because I understand that. And I, I can be honest about that where the other way I can't do that. Yeah. Okay. So a couple of things for people to take note of here is when you're pricing based on hourly, you are literally selling time, your time. And when you do that, you have no connection to the outcome or the results. You just, oh, you want to use more time? If I'm inefficient, if I'm slow, if I'm distracted, if I'm new, I will just continue to charge you more. Now, I know some people who their business depends on them charging hourly, and I've talked to them, and they have like 500 people work for them. And the reason why they have to do that is they work in a creative space where the client changes their mind all the time. And if they were to do fixed-based pricing, value-based pricing, they would be screwed because there's no telling. So this way, there's no tension, and the client just continues to buy more time because they're, they they want more stuff done, more versions, and they're completely content doing that. But I think one of the other reasons why creative people especially, this is a broad statement here, prefer hourly-based pricing is because it's easy, there's no headaches, and, and you know what? I don't actually want to be tied to any business objectives, because I just want to do my thing. I want to draw a logo all day long. I want to make motion graphics all day long, and I just don't really care about the other stuff. So there's that idea of accountability and understanding the larger business goal. And so you had said this at the onset. Don't do value-based pricing if that's not how, how you operate in the world. If you don't think like that, if you're not curious about their business and the larger business goals, don't go there because you're gonna, probably going to fail and vice versa. If you If you only think about value creation, uh, maybe hourly pricing isn't for you either. You got to find the model that fits for you, right? Totally. Okay. Now, I think you and I are aligned in this cause in which we want to help creative people have a more meaningful conversation about the value of the work with the client and within them themselves. I I just want to know, what are your top Dan Mall two or three tips? Somebody's listening to this like, you know what? I was on the fence before. I'm I'm ready. I want to learn. What are the two or three tips that they can do to... uh, to increase their value in the world? Oh, that's a good one. That's a tough question. Okay, so, so let's see. 
One of them that I would say is, you know, what I like about value pricing and, and the, the, the methodology that comes with it, right? The culture that comes with value pricing. If you read a bunch of value pricing books or you talk to folks who have done it well, right? There's, there, are, there are rituals and ceremonies and all the stuff that comes with it, right? Most, a lot of people who value price will send options, right? right? It's not just one price, right? Because if you have an hourly rate, it's one price, right? The only thing that, that changes is the amount of time you're working on it, but your hourly rate doesn't change. Um, so options come with it. So if you, if you kind of think about this value pricing thing, one of the things I love about it is as a designer, it allows me to be creative, right? Because like, yeah, there's the obvious option where, you know, my hourly rate is hundred dollars an hour. I think it's going to take 10 hours. So the price is, is a thousand bucks. Cool. That's option one. What else you got? And I'm like, oh, uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> like what? And so it's a forcing function for you to be creative about that. And that's one of the things I love about the idea of value, whether or not you end up value pricing, just the idea of thinking of different things that you could do for the client. I see a lot of designers not even get to that point. You know, they go like, oh, well, they asked for a poster, so I'm gonna make a poster. I'm like, yeah, but if you would have asked like what they're trying to do, they're trying to sell out shows. Could you run an Instagram campaign for them too? Like maybe that would help them sell out shows better than your poster would. Like, and that would be, you know, 10% of the work that you were gonna put into making the poster. You don't have to do anything printing, you know, you don't have to like the, and the cost would be lower for you too. So you'd become more profitable. That's a small example of like just a, a slightly different option. I think that we as an industry are so tied to, well, the client asked for that. So I have to provide that. Who's, who said, like, who made that rule? Part of our job is, to, especially for designers is to go like, why is that thing like that? And how could I make it better? What are different ways that I could do that? So I'm like, why not apply that to pricing? So. I think that's tip number one is like encourage yourself or, or to be creative about this stuff. Cool. If you want to, if you want to do an hourly, make hourly one of your options. All right. What are the other two? You know, so I think that's a, that's a good gateway to going like, well, what else could I think of? Even if you price those other two hourly, fine. But what are two other things that maybe the client didn't ask for or didn't ask for specifically that you could also price hourly? Um, at one of the exercises that I've seen, you know, a lot of folks do, I think Chris, you do it and I've seen Jonathan do it. And I used to teach this when I taught value pricing is, you know, you come up with your price, however you want option one, and then you double it and you half it and you go, what can we do for double that? Or what can we do for half of that? And it's just like a really, I don't know, fun exercise to do just to think about it. You don't even have to sell it, but just getting in the mind space of that. I think that's the gateway to value pricing is like, it makes you explore, how could I do this differently? You know, and so I think that's that's tip number one. Tip number two is um, create some leverage for yourself, right? So like, if you are depending on this to eat, maybe don't take risks there. If you if you know, maybe that's not the, the first time that you should try value pricing something. Like if you're like, this is the only gig that I have on the table, and I cannot lose this, otherwise I'm not going to be able to buy groceries next month. Probably trying to do something new there is not the great is not a great option. So. Maybe what you do, if you really want to try value pricing is you create some sort of nest egg for yourself where you go, I'm going to price this thing hourly because I know it can be profitable. And now I'm sitting on an extra 2,500 bucks because that's the profit I made on. Now I can pitch the next thing. I can value price it because if it doesn't work, I still have the 2,500 bucks to rely on, you know? So, so the, my second tip is like, maybe you can create some leverage for yourself to be able to take some risk. If value pricing is new to you, if you're, you know, if you're sold on the idea, but you're like, I don't really know how to do it and I want to test it out, don't test it out in a high risk scenario, test it out in a low risk scenario. Um, the, the third thing I think is like, you know, and this, this is what works for me, 
is just learn more about it. You know, there's so many good resources, like all the stuff that Chris, that you do in the future and, and like all of that, there's great videos. Jonathan Stark has an awesome newsletter. Um, you know, Ron Baker and Blair Enns has a great book. Um, you know, there's just so many good resources now for value press. And part of the reason that I, I wrote my book was that there wasn't good enough good resources at the time, right? And now there's just so much more. So, you know, educate yourself on value pressing, on how to do it, all the different things. Like, because again, like if you don't understand it well enough, you won't be able to do it well. So I, I think those are my three off the cuff. Those are my three tips. Or go and read 10 books on economics, <laughs> pricing theory. Totally, yeah, yeah. The, the study right. of economics. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's the other way to do it. Okay. This is wonderful. I have a couple of questions for you before I wrap up here. Sure. And, and I think that to myself, like in, in the in the larger design world, when people think the name Dan Mall, what's the first two things that they think of? And I'm curious if you're intentionally shaping that or not. Yeah, uh, I think it, it would depend when. So right now, um, I think it's design systems. So super friendly, specialized in design systems. Um, that's how I am trying to position both myself and super friendly is like, that's what we do. You know, we say, that's what we do. That is what we do. Do we do other stuff? Yeah, of course we do. <laughs> Everybody does who position, you know, who positions narrowly, but that's what we want to do more of. And so the more we say it, the more we do it. So I have to kind of play that too. Um, at different points in my life and career, like I used to coach agencies and freelancers. I talked about pricing a lot. I used to talk about creative direction. I used to talk about flash and how it works with web, web standards. So like I had all these experiments on like, what do I wanna be known for? What, what do I want to be my thing? And honestly, I, I think it's probably will change in five years, you know? So I'll probably have to reposition myself. But right now I think it's, it's design systems. I think that's the thing. All right, this is fantastic. Uh, before I ask you the last little bit and say goodbye to you, I want to just prompt everybody, if you are enjoying this conversation, we're going to include some links and some resources in the show notes. So make sure you track us back down to the future site so that you can see these things. I saw a talk that you gave to, uh, I think it was uh, last year, AIGA Jacksonville, where you kind of gave these five tips. And one of them was a brilliant way of explaining positioning to people that are job seeking. Now, I think you were talking to students, but I think the 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 way that you did that was such a beautiful exercise in positioning, how you said that it's like writing a love letter. Your portfolio should be a love letter to who it is that you want to get a job from or an opportunity. Totally. And I loved how you went through the whole process and you kept diving deeper and deeper and how tailored you make it. So I'm going to include that video in the link. And if you want to share other videos with me, Dan, I'll be sure to add those in the show notes so my producer cool. Greg can do that as well. Awesome. And uh, definitely pick up this book. It's called Pricing Design. It's it's 10 bucks, you guys. It's 50 pages. And uh, I think in the opening bits, Mike Montero says, uh, you'll make more money from, from, from reading this book than you will have, have spent easily because Dan is a guy who creates value for other people. And so Dan, if people want to find out more about you, where's the best place they can find more about you? Yeah, so I have a personal website, danmall.me. I write on there infrequently. Um, I write much more frequently and randomly on Twitter. So at Dan Mall on Twitter um, and the official biz stuff, uh, if you're interested in design systems or things like that is superfriendlyco on Twitter or superfriendlydesign.systems uh, on the web. So any one of those four places usually. Beautiful. Thank you so much. I love that I could talk to probably a hundred different people who know things about pricing models and pricing strategies and you all have a different way of approaching it. I like your approach. It's very friendly. Like, I guess you live up to your name. 
super friendly. It's super friendly guide to pricing and value-based pricing. And, and it's very inclusive in its language. And it's, it's funny. It's personable. So can't say enough good things about it. So guys, check that out. I'm Dan Mall. You're listening to The Future. Thanks for joining us this time. If you haven't already, subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app and get a new insightful episode from us every week. The Future Podcast is hosted by Chris Doe and produced by me, Greg Gunn. Thank you to Anthony Barrow for editing and mixing this episode. And thank you to Adam Sanborn for our intro music. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor by rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us grow the show and make future episodes that much better. Have a question for Chris or me? Head over to thefuture.com slash heychris and ask away. We read every submission and we just might answer yours in a later episode. If you'd like to support the show and invest in yourself while you're at it, visit thefuture.com. You'll find video courses, digital products, and a bunch of helpful resources about design and creative business. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.